All right. Um, we are in the Gospel of John now. I can't believe we actually made it. John. Of course, I was hoping to get through John by the end of this year. <laughs> and I believe... John 2, 29. Oh, wait a minute. John 1, 35 to 51. Now, if you need to read, you are read because my accent. When I read, sometimes you don't understand some words. So I'm, I'll be skipping my, my time. I'm going to use a bigger Bible, a bigger print. Which version are you going to read from? New Revised Standard Version. But you, you can't get that. Uh, I don't have any. Yeah. No, I they they are not they are not real user friendly for some reason okay so 135 and uh, Christian why don't you begin okay why don't you read uh, that entire section to 51 okay again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said behold the Lamb of God the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus and Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which, translate, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I realized that there was a typo in this handout. And it should have been 129 to 34, and we should have read those first. So I'm wondering, Peter, if you would read those verses. Uh, 29 through 34. 34. Got it. So John 1, 29 through 34. Ah, this is Jesus, the Lamb of God. Beginning verse 29. Mm -hmm. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. 
I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So how much did John know about Jesus' mission? That may seem like a strange question, but you remember that the disciples had a hard time comprehending his mission. They, They thought of Messiah in terms of kingship and power, earthly power. Um, How much did John understand? Well, it's fascinating because down in verse 32, when he gave his testimony, he said, John said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven, depending on which translation you read, as a dove and remain on him. Now, I think about that experience. And we have this translation and our language, but it's like there's so much more that occurred. How how else would you describe the Spirit of God coming down like a dove? Fascinating to me, and so I come back to being a little child. What do I understand? Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about understanding? What do I understand? What What don't I understand? But then I suppose in this text right here, for me, as a little child, it's like, wow, that power was revealed to John in that manner. And so, so what did he understand about that? He saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. You don't have, I mean, there's nothing in the Old Testament that I can recall mm-hmm. that likens the Holy Spirit to a dove. So what context did John have to bring to this? What understanding would he have? What what would this mean to him? When I think of of a dove, I think of... Is it it Noah? Yeah, that's what always comes to my mind, too. Yeah, Uh, Noah sending out a dove. Yeah. Have you ever watched a family of doves? Mm Mm-mm. Um, when my folks lived in Arizona, and I was still home and with them before I left, they lived in Phoenix, and there was apparently a dove's nest in the backyard, Inca dove. Mm-hmm. Inca doves are common in Arizona. They're a desert dove. And there's also morning doves, but as I recall, these were Incas. And... There was Mama and Papa and Junior. And they were trying one day to teach Junior to fly. <laughs> Junior would get in this, ta- in this in a branch of one of the tall trees we had in the backyard. And he would cling to that little branch, and it was a bl- blowing day. It was really <laughs> windy. And he was so scared. So very scared. And his Mommy and Daddy were flying around trying to coax him. You can do it. You can do it. And he was so scared. But he finally managed to get from that branch to the clothesline down below. <laughs> and just kind of 
flutter down and get his wings going. And then he was scared. But I still have in my memory this picture of Mama Bird, Papa Bird, and Junior in the middle between them. And the wind blowing, and they're on this branch, and the branch is going up and down with the wind. <laughs> um, and I thought, you know, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit that, that is just so, so meaningful. Because there's no force there. Just encouragement. Just nurture. Just protection. And so it, it seems to me that whatever John saw, he saw something gentle, something supernatural, something from above. And he suddenly realized that this is not just a, a, a messiach. He, he understands that. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. He on whom, and he said, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John responds to that. I myself have seen and testified this is the Son of God. He doesn't say this is the Messiah. And if you go on, he keeps pointing Jesus and saying, look, here's the Lamb of God. And in, initially, in 29, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, so John seems to have moved from the prevailing view of Jesus as a Mashiach, merely. Which, keep in mind, David is a Mashiach. He was anointed as king. And I believe Solomon was anointed by the priests. So, so the anointed one is the king of Israel. Yeah. And, and that's always thought of as an earthly kind of king. John has moved beyond that. This is a heavenly, this is a heavenly person. This person comes from above. And this person is a son of God. And he's come here to take away the sin of the world. Not, not to rule. Say that again. Take, take it. That was beautiful the way you said that. To take away the sin of the world, not to rule. Yeah. And so many were looking for Jesus to set, to rule. To rule. Yeah. They mm. they saw his supernatural power. Oh. Uh, Judas thought for sure that he would use his power. Right. Yeah. So I really yeah, like yeah. the way you put that. Yeah. Um, it's something that we still eclipse. When I hear feedback from my students about what they've been taught about the gospel, it's like Jesus dropped down out of heaven to die for our sins. And, and um, his life doesn't mean much. That's, that's the sense I get, that, that all we care about is some payment for our sins so we can be forgiven. And, and the life of Jesus on earth doesn't seem to have anything to do with that. And that's one of the reasons we're engaging in this study, is because the models that have been used for sin and salvation and atonement have been our constructs. They have come from our world, from our fake, make-believe world 
of virtual reality. Many of them have. And that's one of the reasons I've been engaging in the study through the Bible, is to look at the biblical narrative. What does the Bible say about sin and salvation? Does it use our constructs? Sometimes, sometimes it uses the economic model, sometimes it uses what seems to be the legal model, um, but it almost always uses it in a way that counters our construct of that model. And, and most of all, there are just so many metaphors about deliverance. Keep in mind, the word salvation in the Old Testament always meant deliverance. Deliverance from. So, so this, this thing of, of being delivered from sin is just huge. And of course, uh, you shall call his name Jesus in Matthew, uh, what is it, 121. Uh, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is, this is Jesus' mission. And the question is, how is he going to do that? Is he just going to die? Is that it? If that's the case, why choose disciples? Well, you've got to keep alive the memory of his death, so he has to have disciples in order to do that. But that's only part of the picture. Jesus' life is just as salvific as his death. And I think that's what we're going to find, especially in the Gospel of John. In uh, verse 33... The other thing I find just beautiful and fascinating and awesome is that most of the translations use the word remain. Uh, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain. Mm-hmm. The Geneva uses the word tarry. But so the Spirit come down and remains on you. What's that with you? Yeah. Does that, does that, is that permanent? Does Jesus walk around with a dove-like form on his shoulder? I doubt it. I doubt if everybody saw that dove. I think only those supernaturally endowed could see it. And they probably were only endowed for that event. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't staying there permanently. That's fascinating because Scripture does say that the Lord reveals certain things to some people and some things... Well, it's, it's like... Yeah. It's like uh, in the end of John, see if we can find that. Look at John 12, and we'll look at verse 27. Uh, Jesus has just been visited by the Greeks that came to see him. And he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop there because we'll be dealing with this later. <laughs> but um, It's going to it, be good. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like it's good. So there you have an example of how some people heard thunder, some people heard words, nobody understood what was happening except Jesus. Okay, let's work on uh, 35 to 51. It's a story of disciples following. And they see Jesus as a Messiah. We have found the Messiah, Peter says. Mm-hmm. 
And yet Nathaniel, who hasn't seen Jesus, who may not have been there when the voice came from heaven, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Which, by the way, why does John leave that out? There's no voice from heaven in John's account. We get that from Matthew. Maybe it's earlier. Let's take a look. Nope. John leaves that out. He uses a more visual experience rather than an auditory experience. Because I don't think Matthew has the dove. Oh, he does. He saw the Spirit of, of God descending like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Why does John leave out the voice? I don't know that we know. But obviously his focus and highlight, he's, he's looking at this through John the Baptist's eyes more than Matthew is. Matthew's looking at it as an onlooker. Yeah. Um, but John is, is looking at it through John the Baptist's eyes. And it's visual. It's very visual. It's partly maybe because the voice doesn't fit what John is trying to accomplish. John is about is is really dealing with the idea of a cosmic court. And he needs all the witnesses assembled to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And you would think the voice would be a witness. But but he ties this spirit ascending like a dove to John's having been told that the one he baptizes on whom the spirit sends like a dove, that's how he knows that that is Jesus, is Jesus is the Messiah, is, is that whole thing. It's not the voice from above that tells John that Jesus is the Messiah. It is that the manifestation of the Spirit descending on him. And then later on he asks, are you the one? Yes, later on he has questions. That's because his disciples got, mm -hmm. had doubts. Well, um, why don't we move on to... Oh, you know, maybe we should touch on 146 real quick. Okay. Because... This is one that always comes back up for me. Nazareth. What good could come out of Nazareth? And if we think about what Nazareth was at the time, what kind of a town was it? What kind of a village was it? And so what good could come out of a village like that? So Nathaniel questioning here, it's, it's pretty astounding because how could that possibly be? And yet, Jesus told him in verse 47, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. He says it like it is, in other words. Well, doesn't, you know, in, in that passage we looked at uh, to compare with in John uh, 12, Jesus is very open and candid about how he feels. My soul, now, now is my soul troubled. You, we are, we live in a culture that tells us not, you know, that's, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be that vulnerable. Jesus is very vulnerable because he says it like it, it is. 
He's not afraid to express himself emotionally. Mm-hmm. And there's so much to that when the heart is laid open, when the heart is just laid open, that we have these experiences that we would not have otherwise. And, you know, this whole thing about why does God bring tragedy? Well, why does, allow, why does God allow tragedy? And in some of the answers to those, to those things, it's through the events that the Lord is going to see happen were opened up by, by being softened. One of those ways is through tragedy. I couldn't even imagine giving up my own son. I could not even imagine. And yet this is what the God of heaven did for us. So that's amazing. You know, and I suppose I don't want to jump ahead, but if we go over to John 7 and 52, this kind of gives a better picture. Uh, John 7, verse 52. And in 52, they replied to him, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. All about the unbelief of the Jewish leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, That's one of the themes of John. Yeah. It's gospel. <clears throat> and, 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 you know, this, it, it, this just kind of supports the, the whole unbelief. It's not possible. It's just not possible that something like this good can come out of Nazareth. And yet, it did. And yet Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his unbelief, does he? When it comes to to Nathaniel, he just uh, he commends him. You're a true Israelite, in whom there is no guile. And you almost see a twinkle in his eye as he's looking at Nathaniel. <laughs> and Nathaniel then says, "Where did you get to know me? How did you know this? Uh, how did because?" Well, he kind of let himself lead himself open for it because if he said that about Gal- about Nazareth, he's obviously pure-blooded Jewish. Because Nazareth is in Galilee, and Galilee is a mixture of Jewish and Gentile. So, if he's saying a comment like that, he's obviously an Israelite. And Jesus says, says goes takes it further, uh, in whom there's no deceit, in whom there's no guile. You you see a candid thing, and Jesus says. Or, or Nathaniel says, where did you get to know me? He feels that Jesus knows his inner soul. How in the world? But I, I don't think I've ever met you before. How in the world did you get to know me? And then Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now there's two ways, I guess, to take that. I haven't been able to verify this, but I've heard and maybe I should never say what I just heard, without verification. I've heard that this could be a phrase of of birth. That being under the fig tree is is kind of symbolic of being born. Um, and that Jesus is saying, "I've known you since you were born." But it could be literal. He's under the fig tree. Well, the fig tree, its shade was a a favorite place for study, mm-hmm. underneath the fig tree. 
I saw you while you were studying, and, and that could be definitely another another interpretation of this. In fact, probably the main ter interpretation of it. But it seems that there may be more because Nathaniel replies, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Now, you know, this is he's he's getting a vision of this person who really knows him from the beginning. And clearly, something happened to Nathaniel because when Jesus was communicating with him, there was. There was something, you know, a tremendous war. You know, Just, you, you talked about a twinkle, in, maybe a twinkle in his eye or something. But there was this incredible experience where Nathaniel yeah. finally just says, "You are well, the son of when, God." When, we're going to come. We're going to come later on to the Jesus healing the paralytic right beside the pool of Bethesda, John five. When you think about when Jesus said, "What can I do for you?" or "What would you like done?" the paralytic. Looks up at Jesus and said, "I want to be well." I mean, I, I, why are you asking me that question? It's quite obvious, you know. He's, he's kind of, he's in a very depressed state, and he says, "But there's no one to help me into the pool." And Jesus looks at him right in the eyes and says, "Rise, take up your bed, and walk." How did the how did the paralytic know he could trust Jesus at that point? Jesus only said a few words, but he evoked trust immediately. This was someone you could trust. I think it goes back to just, like we said, that Jesus' demeanor is just so, like, um, straightforward. And he's so genuine. Like, even back then, they still lived in, so, in similar, like, um, I guess you can say, like, virtual reality, so to speak, but not to the extent that we are today. But they had they had they were embedded pretty much in in a, a man-made construct. Yeah, and studying. Anytime you have hierarchy, you have a man-made construct. You know, and we have hierarchy today, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Nice point. So, but we were going to yeah. say more. Oh, um, that Jesus kind of just juxtaposes that completely, and he's he's that. Um, he always, in the book of John especially, he always says, like, I'd like truly, truly I say to you or I tell you the truth. Almost to say, like, that he's always invoking trust and he's always someone that will, um, will be genuine. And so I think that invokes people to trust him there, because he's just so sincere. There's another, there's another element. You remember the, the Syrophoenician woman? who came yeah. to him about her daughter, and how Jesus yeah. says, it's not meat to give food to dogs. Mm -hmm. He basically calls her a dog. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't she just turn around and leave? Ellen White says that Jesus disguised, thinly veiled his compassion. She felt his compassion underneath his apparent brusqueness. She could feel the love. Probably why she wouldn't let go. Yeah. yeah. But she understood the She knew she could, she could she was picking up the sublim subliminal messages that she was getting mm -hmm. from Jesus. Because she gave the right answer. Yeah. Lord, I'll be a dog if you'll just give me the crumbs from your table. Some of the translations use the word whelps which is interesting because it can refer to either the dog or a person that's degenerate, maybe. 
Well, dog, the, the expression of dog is always used in the ancient Near East and in the Bible when referring to a human being in a very derogatory manner. Yeah, same thing. Extremely, the, the most low of the low. Dogs were not valued like they are in our society. <laughs> you know, and it's so fascinating because in our fake culture today, like we were talking about earlier, it's so common for somebody to call somebody a dog. Yeah. What are you doing, dog? Yeah. I mean, we hear that all the time. And just kind of reinforcing what you had said earlier about how so much of what is in front of us is just so fake. So, so already in the Gospel of John, and I think this is... This is something we can carry with us through the through the uh, gospel. Is that where how Jesus approaches things? There's when you meet Jesus, you meet more than someone who's just uh, straightforward, honest, sincere, and and forthright. You meet someone who is compassionate self, and you sense that from day one. Full of love. Warmth, warmth, forgiveness, yes. healing, healing, yes. Healing. To be in His presence is healing, and and I think we we're going to get this through John more than any other. I think John picked that up more than any other gospel writer, and and the fact that you know he loved to lean on Jesus' breast. That's not something men did in the ancient world, but he he felt that warmth and he wanted to be right in Jesus' heart. He wanted to be surrounded by it. And who knew Jesus better and understood his mission better than John of the four gospel writers? Clearly they had a very close relationship, more so than the other disciples. Yeah. And so the stories John picks aren't the ones the other gospel writers even touch. Not one parable in the book of John? There's, there's uh, the story of Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the, the wedding at Cana, the uh, pool, uh, the man at the pool of Bethesda, the paralytic. There is the good, uh, the feeding of the five thousand, which is also in John and, and other gospels. But how it ends is not in the other gospels. And the real, the fuller story of how they wanted to make him king is in John. And a long, long, long discussion about the blood. Which John's you're going to need to spend some time It's on. like John has these, uh, these, maybe not insights, but he, he's got different descriptions, much different descriptions compared to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Yeah. He, 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 he sees Jesus through different, different eyes, right. different lens, uh, different perspective. And, um, and we just move through it, and, and you have... Long discussions with the Pharisees that the other gospel writers don't have. And you have uh, the man born blind. You have the, the parable of the sheepfold and the shepherd. The raising of Lazarus to life. And um, the foot washing. You don't have that in the, any of the other gospels. And then chapters 14, 15, and 16. You have Jesus' last conversation with his disciples. His last teachings before his death. Profound stuff, and it's not anywhere else. Uh, and then his prayer 
his magnificent prayer. And then the way John crafts the trial and uh, the crucifixion give new insights that aren't present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, I think we're going to find a richness in the Gospel of John that we didn't find in the other three. Not to say that I would want to do without the other three. I think they're all important and significant and they make powerful points. Particularly, particularly Mark against kingship and dominion. Matthew establishing the new covenant and, and the way he transforms the old covenant, the old Sinai covenant the Beatitudes for the blessings and the woes for the curses, meaning that, that uh, in, the real, in the New Covenant, everything is intrinsic and comes out of cause and effect relationships. They're not imposed penalties or blessings. So, we need all four Gospels, but uh, let's milk John for everything we can get out of it. Alright, we're going to close a little early today because of graduation. Uh, so let's have a closing prayer. Dear God, we want to sit at the feet of Jesus. We want to lean on him as John did. We want to get from Jesus everything that he said, that he taught, that he did and understand it in terms of salvation and atonement, and to understand and appreciate more fully what these are. Bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.